turn to Matthew chapter 9. Well, you're finding Matthew chapter 9. I was uh, talking with my dad this past week, and we got on the subject of customer service. And my dad's obviously a little bit older than I am, and I just said, hey, so uh, what do you think? Customer service. Over the years, is it getting better or worse? Is it on the rise, or is it becoming more rare? And before I tell you his answer, what do you guys think? Customer service. And some of you are very much involved in the service industry. Is customer service on the rise, or is it getting worse? Okay, some of you have been around. What do you, how many of you think it's on the rise? Okay, we got, all right. Yes, we got one. Okay, that's good. All right, everybody else, you kind of are feeling like, I don't know. It's Well, you know, it's really interesting. My dad, he kind of came to the conclusion early, thinking through kind of decade by decade. He goes, yeah, I, I, I think it's getting worse. And um, I'd have to say, I'd, I'd agree with him. I mean, have you had these experiences? Like, let's say something's broke in your house. Now, I'm I'm pretty good at figuring out that something's broke. The fixing part, not so good. But I, I can it's not working. Or my kids tell me, or my wife, or whatever. So, so you know, you go to one of those places, you know, and you're trying to find particular hardware or whatever you think you might need to fix that. And you're in there, and you're, you're looking for someone to help you, right? And you spot someone that you think might work there. He's about a block away, right? And uh, you try to make eye contact with him. You're trying to make your way there. He sees you, and he, like, jets down another aisle, right? And so... Well, I know where he's heading. He's heading to those double doors that say employees only, right? And he's making there. So, you know, I, I can walk pretty fast. And I'm going to try to cut him off the pass. If need be, I can break into a run. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to catch this guy. And then you, and you finally get him there and like, Hey, you know what? I got a problem with my bathroom. And he's got that puzzled look to you. And he goes, well, listen, I, I usually work in paints. So I'm just kind of filling in for a guy who's sick, you know, and, and they're not necessarily overly helpful. Or you'd maybe find someone, you explain your problem. And they go, well, that's kind of over in this area. And you'll go there and they're like kind of picking up these products like you, like they've never seen them before. They're twisting them in their hand and they're reading and I'm reading like, I'm not sure. And you have these experiences like they really don't know what's going on. They don't have a lot of experience with their products. These guys can't help me. I was talking with my dad. He was telling me, yeah, I remember when we lived back in White Sulphur Springs, Montana. You know, you're just a boy, but if I had a problem, I'd go down to Peterson's Hardware. And that guy would get behind that desk and come and ask me some questions, and, and he'd help me out. Or if I had a problem while I was trying to fix something or build something, I'd go down to Edwards Lumber. There wasn't a lot of places to go. And, and Mr. Edwards, he not only sold lumber, but he was a carpenter. He knew exactly what to do. And you know the experience. You've been there where you get excellent customer service. It all gets started where they make eye contact with you. They're friendly. And they ask, how can I help you? And then they start asking a series of questions about what you're trying to do, you know. And then they they pull that little carpenter's pencil off their ear. It's flat, you know, and they start sketching out a few things. And they start saying, well, listen, now, if you're going to mount that light, make sure you do not get too close to the soffit. You're going to need a three-quarter inch uh, masonry bit for sure on that. And when you... When you put that in, uh, make sure that you use galvanized hardware because it's an outdoor deal. And they actually know exactly what is needed. And they spill it out and they tell it to you. When it comes to the church today, we're starting to miss the Mr. Petersons and the Mr. Edwards. We are losing the ability to have spiritual shepherds who truly care about people and are willing to invest in their lives and to actually help them grow spiritually, to address needs, to figure out what the problem is, and to point them in the direction of where they need to go. They can feed them, they can care for them, they protect them, just like a shepherd does. It's becoming rare 
in the church. And when you've got your Bibles open here to Matthew chapter 9, if you want to know the heart of Jesus' ministry, you're going to want to zero in on Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. He is going to spell out, this is, a, this is an absolute critical, must-know, deeply aware, understand passage for every believer, because it articulates the heart of God. And it addresses the fact that what is needed in our day, this is the need of our day, and that is that we have God raising up servants who will truly be shepherds. We're not after cattle herders and just kind of chasing people around and trying to get them from here to there and not really care about them. God is interested in developing spiritual shepherds and the heart of Christ is revealed in these verses that we're going to see right here. Now, do you remember what happened last time? Last time, Jesus went about doing a series of miracles authenticating that he indeed is the promised Messiah, that he's God. Remember, you had a synagogue official. Okay, now the synagogue and the Pharisees and the scribes, they were developing a pretty deep seated animosity toward Jesus. They didn't like what he was doing. He was directing people away from them and to himself. He was calling them on their facades and their little spiritual makeup things that they had going on. And they didn't like that. And then Jesus encounters a synagogue official. He was the lead guide. He was the chief official. Remember, he said, my daughter, daughter has died. Would you come and heal? Could you do something? Just come. If you touch her, she could be made well. Now, that was outstanding faith. And remember, there was a woman who had, for 12 years, she'd been hemorrhaging. She probably had a uterine hemorrhage. She'd been, she had been unclean for 12 years. And Jesus healed her. She believed that if I just touched the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. And then you remember that when Jesus shows up and the funeral procession, things had already started with the people, women, women wailing and the flute players playing all their discord on their flutes. And Jesus' first words to this crowd that had mourned, they were professional mourners, is like, I need you to leave. First word to them is leave. And this girl is not dead. She is asleep. And then do you remember that he raised this girl from the dead? And there was a series of other miracles. There was one that was extremely profound. And we looked at it last time in verse 27. There were these two blind men that obviously had a lot more vision than most people because they had heard about Jesus and they are calling him what? You see him in verse 27. They're calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. That is the key phrase for Messiah. They believe that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. And they're saying, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, most of the Jews were waiting for a Messiah who was political in nature, very possibly a military type Messiah. A guy who's going to come down and clean house on Rome, beat him out, chase him out and say, stay out. All right. These are my people. Stop messing with them. And here's my kingdom. They were waiting for a king like that. They had omitted or just forgotten that many of the prophecies regarding Messiah were that one who would be a spiritual healer, one who was going to dress their sin issue like Isaiah 53. Yes, he would do and meet physical needs. In fact, he would do things specifically like heal the lame and to make the blind see and those who were deaf to be able to hear. These were authenticating signs of the Messiah. And these men understood that. And so they call out, son of David, have mercy on us. What they're saying, you're the Messiah, we believe. And Jesus has an opportunity to authenticate. Indeed, he is the son of David, the Messiah. And so when he entered the house, verse 28, he said, do you believe I'm able to do this? 
And they said to him, yes, Lord, yes, God, we believe you're the Lord. You could do this. And he touched their eyes and they were healed. And the people were amazed. They had never seen anything like this before. Now, what happened right after this? The Pharisees, you see these guys right here? These were kind of the religious elite. They were the separatists. Okay, verse 34, do you see them? The Pharisees were saying this. He casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. You see, Satan tries to imitate God. He wanted to be God. And when God said no, then he leads a revolt. And oftentimes his revolt is imitation. He has pseudo-spirituality, false religions, world religions. He's gathering the masses to himself to be worshipped in all sorts of different forms. That all roads lead to God? Boy, guess what? He loves that. He's basically saying, except for the one road, all the roads actually lead to me. I like that. That's good for me. He sets up an imitation. And what the Pharisees were doing, and this is highly profound, because after they, this, they make this statement, Jesus makes a major development to his ministry. They said, you are in league with the devil. When people were saying, whoa, this is the Messiah, this is the son of David. They're like, hey, wait, wait a second here. We're, we're your spiritual leaders. And this Jesus fella, we're not so sure about him. Uh, no. You know what? We'll tell you how he's doing these things. You see, he actually is, he's in league with the devil. And the reason that these demons obey him and even cast out demons is because he's their boss. That's what they're saying. And they are attributing the works of the Messiah to Satan. After that statement, Jesus makes this huge development in the ministry. He begins, you see it here in verse 35 and following, watch what takes place. Their statement leads to his revelation of what he is about to accomplish on this earth and a work that is continuing to this very day. Verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of of sickness. Now, let me just tell you what Jesus is going to do. He is now he is in the work of proclaiming who indeed he is. There is uh, based on historical records, especially those of Josephus. There are about 200 villages and cities. The difference between a city and a village is a city had a fortification around it. You had a wall. You basically had enough people or you thought your place was nice enough or you thought it was nice enough. You built a wall around it. As a, as a means of protection, so invaders would go, well, we have to get through this wall to get through these people. If you didn't have a wall around your place, you were lived in a village, okay? All right, so all of us, we generally live in, what, villages today, right? Because we don't have walls. But that was the difference. There was an estimated about 3 million people. Jesus is just making his way to each one of these villages and these cities, and he is, first of all, he is teaching in their synagogues. Now, the synagogue might be unfamiliar to you. Let me just kind of give you a little history of the synagogues so you understand this. You've heard, heard, heard that there's synagogues. There's synagogues here in Waco. A synagogue literally means a place of assembly. And what happened in 586 when the Jews were hauled out of Judah, okay, the southern kingdom, and they were hauled into Babylon, they still had a heart to want to worship God. And so what they did is they collected, they made these gathering places. 
They were a synagogue. And, and just like the temple, for the most part, was open air. It had walls. There was a few parts that were enclosed. But the most part, though, was open air so that when you worship God, you could look up and you could just be amazed at his grandeur. Whether it be the movement of the clouds or the sun or the stars, you would be enthralled with God who gives forth, speaks forth his glory in the revelation of himself, even in the heavens. Well, their synagogues oftentimes didn't have roofs, and they would meet, and they met for synagogue. They met three times a week. You met on the Sabbath, okay, Saturday. You met on the second day of the week and the fifth day. And they pretty much had a very typical order of what they did. The first thing you guys would do is everybody kind of get together, and you'd always know where the synagogue was because they'd actually put a really tall pole. So no matter where you showed up, you could always find the synagogue because that's where the tall pole is. And you just keep walking and eventually going to run to it. First thing they do is they would have a time where they are actually singing songs of praise. They would worship God in song. And then that would be followed by a testimony or two of God's faithfulness. They wanted to continue to remind each other and the people that are gathered that God is faithful. That was an extremely important element when they're in captivity. Because it looked like it was end of the game. You're just going to get amalgamated in the Babylonian culture and the Jews disappear. The promised people. So they remind each other of God's faithfulness. And then they would spend time in prayer. That would be followed by the reading of the law. Okay, so the law is what? The first five books of the Old Testament. Now, in the time of Jesus, most of the people here spoke Aramaic. Okay, the Palestinian Jews spoke Aramaic. So it'd be read in Hebrew and then it'd be translated into Aramaic. Okay, so everybody would hear. Now, a lot of those understood Hebrew, but many of them didn't. And so they would translate into Aramaic. And then followed by that, there would be the reading from a prophet's. And then there would be a major heart of every one of their services, and that was the exposition of Scripture. But they would actually have someone, a male, teach through the Scriptures. Now, this, was, this could be done by any qualified male. To have a synagogue, all you need was ten males. Okay, ten males were living in an area. You could form a synagogue. They had a principle called the freedom of the synagogue. And this allowed for any qualified male to be able to teach the scriptures. Now, they're meeting three times a week. Oftentimes, they would give this opportunity or this privilege to a visiting rabbi or a dignitary. And that's exactly when you see Jesus speaking in all these villages. Yes, there were some times where he just kind of set up camp on a street corner on a side of a hill. But just like you see in Paul in the New Testament, you see Jesus. There is an opportunity to speak in the synagogue to expound the scriptures, to explain what they mean. And so that's what Jesus does. Jesus would come. They would obviously, everybody had heard about Jesus in the whole Galilee area. And so when it came time for the exposition, he was given the honor to speak. What does he talk about? He talks about how the kingdom of God has come. He's the king. He explains about the prophecies of the Messiah and how they point to him. He talks about the need for God's righteousness. You can look at the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when we went through that? Chapters 5, 6, and 7. He probably expound passages like that. He showed how the law and the prophets keep speaking of Messiah. And he is saying, I'm him. Creating huge divisions. Because you either believe or you reject. And so that's what he's doing. He is teaching... In their synagogues, you see what else he's doing? He is proclaiming. He is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Literally the good news that the king has come. Now, he's doing this certainly in synagogues, but 
He's doing it in all sorts of various capacities and different scenarios. He is showing, he is unfolding the mysteries of the Old Testament and showing how he is the fulfillment of them. He is calling people to repentance, turning from their sin, and to trust him. There was no ambiguity with Jesus. He never said, well, there's just lots of ways to spirituality and we need to appreciate everybody else's religions and the Canaanites have something good going here. No, he said, I am the way, I'm the truth, and the life. This is the absolute truth. Relationship with God comes by believing in me. And that's what he did. He said that he was the entrance to the kingdom and he's the ruler of it. Remember, you want to have life? You come to me, you hear my words and you act on them. It's about me. In fact, at the end of the Sermon Mount, he says, I will be the one who will determine who goes into the kingdom. It is all about me. I have come to redeem you, to rescue you and to draw you to myself. So he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and his kingdom was actually starting while he was walking in the earth. Anybody who'd call out to him, Lord, with faith and trust and belief, you know, he's reigning in their hearts. That's true today. Many of you in this room, your absolute allegiance is with Jesus Christ. You call him Lord. And it's not just something flippantly saying in a song. You mean it with your life. He is reigning in your heart. He is number one. He is the king priority. But there is a day coming, the millennial kingdom, spoken of in like Revelation chapter 20, where he is going to reign on this earth, and he'll do so for a thousand years. There will be a literal kingdom. And then in the new heavens and the new earth, he is ultimately going to reign over all things. He spoke of the kingdom. And he says, I am the king. And he substantiated, these these are just huge claims. Can you back them up? And notice what the text points out. He's teaching in their synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what is he doing? Look, verse 35. He's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. It doesn't matter if your body's bleeding. It's broken. You're something wrong with your mind. You are demon possessed. If you're sick, Jesus could heal it. You can't speak. He could fix that. Can't see. Let me touch your eyes and be seen. And do not be unbelieving, but believe. He absolutely authenticated, indeed, he's the Messiah. But Jesus saw past past physical infirmities. We've got to make sure we see this. You see, there's a far greater need than the brokenness of our bodies. We're all dying. We're all going to die. There's a much greater need in every single person. And that is the ravages of sin and its effect on our life. We need rescue. We need salvation. We need redemption. We need someone to atone for our sins. We need someone to make us right with God. We need a righteousness that comes from God himself because we just don't have it. Our lives are broken. Our hearts are wicked. We've all sinned and we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus, he sees. Yes, he sees the physical infirmities, and yes, he cares. And when he was here, he gave us a precursor of what it'll look like in the kingdom, where he will actually take away all those diseases and all of those problems and infirmities. But there is a much greater need, and the reason why he specifically came is to address our sin issues. 
and to bring us into fullness of life and fullness of maturity in him. And hence, we're going to see Jesus motive in ministry. Look at this. Verse 36. I've got it a little marked by it. I've got it underlined. You want to see the heart of God. You just need to study Jesus. Look at this. Verse 36. Seeing the people, what? He felt compassion for them. Now, the word compassion, it, it really, it means like your insides, okay? Your intestines, your bowels, kind of an older word that we don't use very often. And the idea is, you know when, when something really bothers you or you're just anguished or you're just grieving? Do you know how you just feel it in your stomach and your gut, you know? Sometimes you're even just like trembling when you go under serious duress and shock over something that's very difficult or very grievous. You know what I'm talking about? We've we've all experienced it. That's that is why they always attributed deep emotion to the visceral reaction that happened within their organs and their intestines. It's like this is a heart of emotion. It starts shaking and moving. Jesus is literally moved in a very visceral way. With compassion. Why? He feels a deep compassion for these people. By the way, this is a huge significant difference between the one true living God and all other false gods and false religions. Is that God actually is compassionate. So, for instance, like the Greek gods and the Romans, you know, they were like, well, you Greeks, pretty clever. You came up with all these really cool gods. We'll just adopt them. We'll just change their name. They'll be our gods. That's cool, right? And so they did. Do you know what the chief kind of um, attribute or supreme attribute of the ancient Greek gods was? Apatheia. We get our word apathy from it. Totally could care less. You see, the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, their supposed gods, really, they were all about who? They were about themselves. They actually could care less about humanity. Humanity was merely a spectator to all their immorality, all of their wicked tricks they were playing on each other and playing on people, they could care less about people. And yet they were worshipped and honored as gods. If you want a really cruel system of religion, look at Hinduism. In Hinduism, you've got a caste system. That caste system says you don't touch people underneath you. And, that's, and the idea is that this just kind of cruel, oftentimes barbaric treatment of the sick and the dying The idea is that you don't want to actually mess with that because you're in some way delaying the process of karma and reincarnation in their life. And so they have a justification. Just let them suffer. Compassion doesn't have anything to do with it. In fact, you showing compassion, you're actually hurting the process. How twisted and wicked is that? They have their highest, the Brahmins, the Hindu priestly caste. They, They have absolutely, in their minds, Absolutely no responsibility for any of the people that are underneath them, especially those that are sick, dying, broken, hurting. (laughs) Get out of our way. Don't touch us. You're untouchable. And they live lives completely consumed for themselves and their own gods. If you look at Islam and its secular and religious bloodshed, you're not going to find a whole lot of compassion coming from Allah. Fear, frightened, but compassionate? Don't think so. When Buddhists, when they do acts of benevolence, 
It is always to earn something. It's, it's about merit. They are laying up merit. Here's something that's pretty shocking. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elite, the leaders, they thought they were the shepherds of Israel. They were just laying huge burdens on people. They, they presented God as he's vengeful, he's mad, he's angry, or he just really doesn't care about you. And they were really all steeped up in their traditions and their religion. And they missed the heart of God, who is gracious, loving, and compassionate. Yes, he is absolutely a God of justice. He is going to address every sin issue. But he is a God of mercy and of compassion. And when Jesus comes and he sees the people and all their brokenness, in fact, in the next chapter, in verse 6, I believe he calls them the lost sheep of Israel. He feels what? Compassion. You want to see another motive for Jesus? Look at this. He felt compassion for them because, verse 36, he saw them in their lost condition because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw through the spiritual facades. He saw that these people were distressed. That has the idea that they are like severely wounded, battered, beat up, bruised, mangled, ripped. That is really what is conveyed there. The word distressed, we can just like, no, so they're having a little problem. Like if we're in a traffic jam, we're, we're distressed. No, the, the idea is that they're being ripped apart. And, and originally the word had the idea of like if you're skinning an animal. Just literally, Jesus saw the brokenness, what sin had caused, the fact that they didn't have any shepherds and no one really cared. And they are also dispirited, the idea that they are thrown down, they're prostrate. They are utterly helpless. They are downcast. They are, and friends, please do not miss this. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They do not have people who are spiritual leaders in their life who will shepherd them and care for them. So what does a shepherd do? Okay, most of us are not shepherds, but we've read books or heard stories or we have friends that are. What do shepherds do? They feed sheep, right? Uh, If the sheep has got a broken leg, what do they do? They're going to try to fix that, right? They're involved in healing. They're involved in comforting. They guide them, right? They take them to the green pastures. They make sure things are fine. They are protecting them. Okay, if the big bad wolf shows up, what does the shepherd do? He goes, I don't think so. And he pulls out his gun and ended the story, right? You know, and he's, why? Because why? He is protecting the sheep. He is a shepherd. He cares about every single one of them. He's not like, well, I hope 50% make it. I want all of them. All 100. And if one gets lost, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set these 99 and 10. I will go find that other one. You see, the people of Israel, Jesus says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And it literally crushed him. He says this with tears in his eyes because he has moved from the very insides of his being. No one cares about my people. The scribes and the Pharisees, these self-proclaimed religious leaders, they're not cutting it. They don't care. And furthermore, they don't know what to do. And really, the Pharisees and the scribes, they actually looked with disdain to the common people. They were somewhat of a nuisance. They could never keep the law like they did. And so they just like, miserable. You guys are, oh, you failed again. You know, and they just kind of resented them. And so they pile up all these things. You know, if you're really holy, you would never do this. And you'd always do this. And they had all these rules and traditions. And they kept, Jesus says, this crushes me. This grips my heart. This breaks it. 
You know, there's um, a lot of religious leaders like that today. They don't really care about the truth and they're not even overly concerned about the people. And so they have a way of distorting the word, omitting it altogether or kind of contradicting God's word. Like, well, it doesn't really mean this, i.e. liberal and moderate Christianity, watering things down. I mean, it's hard to I've, I've had people tell me that it's hard to find a church that will actually use the word repent. Literally, you have to turn from your sin and trust Christ alone. There's some churches, one of the largest churches in the land. I'm not going to use the word sin. That's so negative. People don't like negative. I'm just about happy stuff. And you know what? That's false. It's leading people astray. What was Jesus opening words? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was John the Baptist opening words? The prophet to the Messiah. Same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what we have, we have spiritual, quote unquote, spiritual leaders. And they have they have all sorts of religious rituals they want people to do. They got their own way. You just do this. Love everybody, whatever. And they got all these like little deals they want people to engage in. And they are leading people away from the one true living God. They omit the cross and this and our sin and the graciousness of God and how he's provided salvation for us. And they've got a works way of getting you to God. Or they just say, oh, listen, God is so good. He would never send anyone to hell. Don't worry about it. You're going to be just fine. In actuality, those are, quote unquote, spiritual shepherds who know very little about truth and about genuine spirituality. And Jesus sees this. These guys look religious, man. They dressed the part. They had the robes. They had the attraction. They had the words. They actually knew a lot about the Bible. They just didn't know a lot about God. And they certainly didn't have his heart for people. And Jesus says, this breaks my heart. What is needed are shepherds, people who care. The Mr. Petersons, the Mr. Edwards, the people that can actually help people come to a saving knowledge of God and grow in that relationship that I can identify next steps, deal with hurt. They care enough. They actually can use the word to apply to help the people grow in their life. That is what is needed. And so Jesus says, listen, this verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. Friends calls his disciples, open your eyes and see the harvest is plentiful. Now is the time to bring in the harvest. There are hundreds and millions of hearts that are ready for relationship with God. What is needed are workers that are actually going to engage in the harvest process. And now when it's harvest time, our farmers and our myths, they know this. You've got a, a window of opportunity to get that harvest in. You've got things like insects, rain, hail. These are all enemies of the harvest. And so when that window's there, you engage. It is time to move in to address the harvest, to bring it in before something happens. While the time is right, Jesus is saying, now is the time. We need workers in the harvest. The problem, he says, verse 37, the harvest is plentiful. It's rich. It is bountiful. If you would just see, the problem is this. But the workers are few. There aren't, there aren't many workers. Now, 
I don't know if you've been around Harvest. When I uh, grew up as a kid, we'd go out to my grandparents and my uncle's farm on a big operation out there. Sometimes we'd go at harvest time. Everybody works at harvest time. You're not playing in a swing. You're not throwing rocks at the bull. You're not chasing the cats. Everybody works at harvest time. That was true in biblical times. Everybody did. In fact, if you didn't work in the harvest, Proverbs chapter 10 says uh, you, were, you were a foolish son. You act shamefully if you didn't work during harvest time. Everybody worked to bring in the harvest. The problem is, is that the workers are few. When he talks about workers in the harvest, these are people who will engage the lost with the love and the life of Jesus Christ. Workers, not people who are on the war path, learning, uh, looking to just kind of have a fight and win it in Jesus' name. That's not a worker where you just kind of work someone over. You, you have five truths that you feel like you can win any argument. No, you have a heart to engage people so that they come to know the loveliness of Christ and the salvation that he provides. And so this is what he's doing. He's saying the workers are few. He's setting it up with the great need of the hour. There needs to be workers. Now, let me just tell you something here. Did you know this, that every believer in Christ is in the ministry? Really? The problem is, most people don't know it. If I ask you, are you in the ministry? Like, huh, no, I'm not in the ministry. Are you a believer in Christ? Well, absolutely. You're in the ministry. Wherever God has placed you, you represent him. He intends to do his work through you. Just like he's done this amazing, all-glorious work of salvation for you. He did it all. Don't think he did it. He intends to do his work through you. You're in the ministry. You just may not know it. It's like at harvest time, no, nothing can be wasted. Everybody has to get out there and work. Now, I remember when at harvest time, they eat four meals a day. You have breakfast. They actually bring the meals out to the workers. And I remember that things got really tense, like when the combine went down, like it took in a big rock. Oh, my. Okay. First of all, you heard some things you probably shouldn't hear. And as that they bring it into the shop and they are working on it feverishly to get it back in operation, to get it back in the field. You see, there is a window of opportunity. And you, Christian, me, we're all in the ministry. You can't say, well, we'll hire a few pastors and we'll get some missionaries and they'll do the ministry. We'll sit back and watch. We're fans. No. We are all in the ministry. But just like Jesus said then, as he says now, but the workers are few. Now, why is it that there are so few laborers in the harvest? Let me just throw out a few reasons. One is there's a lot of unsaved people. There's people that have truly not entered into a life-saving, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Unbelievers make for bad evangelists. You know that? Okay, why? They don't believe. Why would in the world would they even concern themselves with ever, ever caring about the lost souls of humanity when they are one of them? They're not going to share that gospel. Not going to happen. Let me give you another one. Some are just unwilling. No, 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 no. There's a lot of exciting things in this world. That isn't anything I'm interested. No way. I will not have it. Nope, sorry. Here's another one. This is huge. They're untrained. Let me ask you. Could you share the gospel of Jesus Christ and could you do it in two minutes? Could you? If the answer to that question is yes, you are trained. 
You could share your testimony. You could say, yeah, I understand God's love is justice, sin, salvation, faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is actually dwelling in those who believe. I could do that. Yeah, I could do it. But if you're not trained, if you don't have just the basics of the gospel down in your head, you can't share your story in about a couple minutes, then when the opportunities come, and they're, they're going to happen like all the time, you're just going to go, sorry, and you'll just keep it on sports or the weather. Let me give you another reason why there are so few laborers. There's folks that are just unavailable. You know, I have a real concern for the evangelization of the world. I am so busy. Look at my day planner. And you pull out your iPhone and you just show off your outlook. And like, look, every 15 minutes is scheduled. I would love to help, but I can't. You know what I'm saying? I can't. And you're just simply unavailable. Let me give you a fifth one. You're simply unmoved and you're unconcerned. Yeah, this sounds good. Yeah, you got me a little interested as you're kind of talking through this passage here. I see what Jesus is saying here. Oh, I wonder what's on TV this afternoon. And, and it never goes past that. You're concerned about your clothes, your car, your 401k, your job, things that are going on in your family. All those things are good. Please, you want to take care of those things. But when it comes to the advancement of the gospel, the work of the harvest, you have little interest. If you have little interest, you won't do it. You know, you and I only do what we want to do. Right? You want to do something, you do it. You don't, you don't. You want to be involved in the work. You see the need. God has gripped your heart. There is a love of Christ that wells up in you and you want to engage. You will. Just imagine just imagine if you had a farm and you had these workers and it was harvest time. And you're like, yes, time to go, man. Fire up the tractors. Everybody, let's go. Come on. You got all these guys. And they're like, oh, oh wait a second here. You know, I, I, don't, I don't really like to get dirty. I, I should have told you that before I signed up here. I don't like. I, and then another guy goes, you don't like to get dirty? Oh, I don't mind dirt. I just don't like work. Okay. I'll look at dirt. but I don't. And then you got some other guys and like, well, we... We, we're not really farmers. We like to dress up like farmers, okay? But we're not really farmers. You could think of us as like a fan of farmers, okay? We like the farmers, we dress like the farmers, but we are not actual farmers. What good would that be? Jesus says, guess what? The harvest is plentiful. But the workers, they're few. And so this is what needs to happen. Verse 38. Therefore, you gotta pray. Beseech. You see that word? Fervently pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. What we need to do is pray to who? The Lord of the harvest. Who's the Lord of the harvest? Well, if you keep reading, when you get to chapter 10, he's going to have them pray. And Jesus is the one who is going to send the people who are praying out. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one who is the creator of the seed of faith. He is the one who brings about its germination, its development, the fibers of faith, the development of fruit and the full grain. It is he who does it. He calls the workers. He brings people to Christ. He is the one. He is the Lord of the harvest. And he says, you pray to me, the Lord of the harvest, because the time is now to send out workers into the harvest. What God is looking for is spiritual shepherds. Now, this certainly includes the work of evangelism. We go out and we share the gospel. So like this afternoon, we got folks in our church that are heading off to the prison. You know what they're going to do? They're going to go and they're going to share the love and the life of Jesus Christ with all these incarcerated kids. It happens every Sunday. They're going to do it. 
But it's spiritual shepherding. You proclaim the gospel, but you actually help people grow to full maturity in Christ. It's not just like, oh, they prayed to receive Christ. Great. We'll see you later. And you just leave them there. That's like leaving your little infant in your front yard and like, I hope you grow up and survive and do well in life. Is that going to happen? Dog sniffs on them, licks on them, sprinkler hits them in the head. That's not going to help. What you need is what? Parents. You don't do that. You're like, no, you can't be out in the sun here. And you feed them and you help them grow. That's what shepherding is. You help people grow and take the next steps. It's messy. It's dirty. It's hard. It's tedious. But it is the fruitful work of spiritual parenting. They are spiritual shepherds that need to be raised up. And that is what Jesus is calling for. Men and women who will have compassion on the lost like he does. See their true situation and state. Bring the gospel and bring them to life and maturity. Now, do you know how people actually get involved in the life of a church? Let me, the Institute of American Church Growth, they asked 10,000 people their spiritual pilgrimage, and they try to figure out how do people actually get involved in the life of a church where they are just experiencing life and living it. This is what they found. What led these people in? Special needs in their life? 2%. Walk-ins? 3%. Pastor? Yeah, good pastors. 6%. Wow. Okay. Visitation. Oh, that'll bring them in, right? 1% of the people said that had anything to do with it. Sunday school? Oh, it's got to be Sunday school, right? If you're in Sunday school, that's all that matters, right? 5%. Ooh. Oh, I gotcha. Evangelistic crusade. Bring in the big guns. Get that stadium filled up. How many people entered the church there for that? 5%. I know. We got some just awesome programs. You can't miss this. 3%. Are you ready for the next one? Friends, relatives, involved in the lives of other people. 79%. When you and I see ourselves as spiritual shepherds and we enter into the lives of other people, wherever they are, whether they're far from Christ or they're just glowing like Christ, that's what brings people into the life of the kingdom. You see, God is seeking to use his followers We are worshipers, but we are workers. Uh, November 2010, there was a wedding party in Glenelg, Australia. And they finished the wedding. They were standing on this ledge, beautiful scenery. There's the ocean. They're taking pictures. And lo and behold, someone not affiliated with the wedding party was drowning out there, kind of in the Bay Area there. So the best man kind of took a look at the situation there. Tuxedo and all. Hits that water. He swims out. He rescues this woman who's drowning. The bride. She actually climbs down there in her wedding dress. She's a nurse. She meets that that uh, best man, dragging this woman. She's actually unconscious. She actually begins CPR and actually brings this woman back. Now, by the time the actual people that are supposed to be doing these sort of things, the surf life saving volunteers show up, they'd actually resuscitated this woman. And after she was fine and they kind of took over, they just rejoined the festivities of the wedding. Just right off, right out there in the sun, just like that. Friends, what a picture of the church. You know what? We are all about the worship of Jesus Christ. He's everything to us. It is a joy to gather on Sunday morning, right? It's a joy to worship him during the week. But we are also workers. We're involved in the rescue mission. It's not like, oh, I'm afraid of getting dirty. I don't like water. I don't like drowning people. We dive in. 
we dive in and we see God use us. We act and step out by faith and not just to bring them in and like, well, you're barely alive. We'll leave you here. We want to see people made complete in Christ. You know, our mission to glorify God by living out the life we have in Christ, loving God, investing in others. That is the work of spiritual shepherding, whether it be in a fellowship family or your own family. With our children. Do you know there's people back there? When I walked in this morning, there is a lady with her daughter that is presently in that far room over there. And I just said, thank you for working and investing in our children. She goes, this is such a joy and privilege for me. As she's playing with the Play-Doh, working out the word love. Whether it be our vacation Bible school or with our students or our college ministry, the need of the hour is for spiritual shepherds. And that is you. God wants us to be mobilized. He says, look and see, the harvest is plentiful, but their workers are few. Pray. Now, I'll tell you, it is a joy to be a part of Fellowship Bible Church because you know what? It's happening. It's happening on multiple fronts. It's happening with our students. And so now, if you're a high school or junior high student and you went on the mission trip, now is the time to awaken, okay? Now, I saw these folks at 145 this morning right out here. And uh, you guys come up here. That's right. Wake them all up there. They had traveled all the way back from New Mexico, from the Indian Reservation, the Navajo Indian Reservation. They have been serving Christ and doing exactly what we've talking about, serving as spiritual shepherds to a people in need. And I want to just give you a few minutes just to share what God has been doing. So, Jeff, you're looking really good for about three hours of sleep, man. Yeah, yeah. Mountain Dew does wonder, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, sleep rather... Okay, that was your wake up there. Okay, okay. we are all awake now. Right. Yeah, sleep was in rather short supply this uh, this trip. We did pull in about 1.30 this morning, so uh, this probably won't be the most polished presentation you've ever seen, but I think you'll see the heart of the ones that are here. We actually had 26 people go. Several are gone on already on other trips, and we had a few out sick and stuff, but uh, we're going to share with you just what, what, what went on this week. We went to Gallup, New Mexico, and through uh, an organization called One Way Ministries, that does a lot of social things, you know, building and, and those kinds of things, but really at the heart of everything they do, they're extremely gospel-centered. And so uh, so we went with them, partnered with them, as they partnered with the indigenous Indian people, the Navajo people, to uh, to, to bring about a, a lot of ministry in, in the area. So we're going to pass it around, and some of these guys are going to talk. Uh, if you want to chime in, some of you guys that don't have a specific, a specific role, you want to chime in, fine, uh, if you want, you want to say something. But uh, one of the places that we've served this week was called Red Hill Trailer Park. And I believe Austin and Joel are going to tell us what went on out there. Okay. I was at Red Hill Trailer Park, and I'm proud to say that I think seven kids accepted Christ this week, which is huge. Also, we had 50 kids come on the first day, and towards the end of the week, even lots of adults started coming to our vacation Bible school, which was pretty neat. Um, Red Hill is sort of like what we would think of a middle class in Gallup. It's trailer parks, and um, there's really a huge amount of kids there, uh, reached and unreached by Christ. And so we did vacation Bible school there, and we played games and had lessons and stories and crafts and snacks. And so it was a really good experience uh, hanging out with those children and leading them, some of them, to Christ. 
Yeah, and one of the cool things that came out of Red Hill is that they, you know, One Way Ministries tries to establish long-term ministries. And so uh, this coming week, another group is coming in to do ministry with the adults in Red Hill. And their prayer going into this was that they'd be able to establish, you know, long-term, actually, a house church in the trailer park. And they're trying to identify, you know, someone who could, you know, a trailer, a family that, that would allow that. And so through what we did there and some of the adults coming, they actually identified a couple that were willing to uh, next week start a Bible study in their trailer. And so that's exactly what we were trying to, uh, trying to, it was just incredible. So, uh, then the, the other location where we had vacation Bible schools was a little bit more remote. Uh, it was on the reservation itself and it was called, uh, Church Rock, a little village. And, uh, Ash is going to tell us a little bit about that. Okay. So we also went to Church Rock and over there it's really poor and their houses are made out of uh, boards and tent and pieces of metal. There's no roads. They don't have running water. Um, so it's basically like a third world country, just a couple miles out of town. And so we were able to go and do a VBS there with sports and snacks and craft and Bible story. And um, also, there also, adults came, and we were able to minister to adults and kids for the VBS. That was a really neat experience also. And um, so overall, it was a really eye-opening experience. Um, and several people came to know Jesus there also. Yeah, and some of them weren't even kids. Some of them were actually, were actually adults that came to Christ. So it was really cool. Uh, and then uh, in the mornings, the VBS was in the afternoon. In the mornings, we had little different projects that we did. Uh, one of the things that we did, we were partnering with a, a church called uh, First Indian uh, Baptist Church. And one of the things that they try to do is, is do ministry and evangelism in the area laundry mats near their church, which was not something any of us ever had any experience in. Uh, but they put us to work. And so uh, Valerie and Hannah were part of that one day and wanted to share a little bit about what went on there. Yeah, like Jeff said, we went um, to laundry mats, and we had um, laundry detergent and a Bible, and we would go in trying to make conversation with people. And um, one of our leaders, Miss um, Millhouse, she got into a conversation with a girl named Tushi, and um, she was you could tell that she was hurting inside and that she really wanted to talk to us. So she got on a brave front and told us that, we, that she didn't really want want to talk to us, but you could tell that she wanted to, and um, it got pretty personal for her, and um, she ended up leaving with a Bible and um, uh, told us that she was going to start reading in certain parts of the Bible, and it was um, it was great to see um, everybody being bold in their faith and really sharing what was going on. Well, uh, well, uh, um we met this lady named June, and she was, like, in her late 40s or 50s. And we just, Lauren and I just came up to her and just asked if um, we would, if we could pray with her or pray for her for anything. And she really wanted us to pray with her. And it was a very emotional prayer because she was, we didn't know her situation, but she was, like, crying. And it was very moving. And it was just incredible how God used us because we were scared, and we would never done this before. And so it was just it was just really cool how God used us. Uh, not everything went exactly according to plan on this trip. Uh, that would be an understatement. Uh, one of the interesting things uh, that happened, uh, Brandon actually asked to share about that I think in many ways sort of symbolizes 
thought of what this trip was about. Um, one of the nights, I can't remember, it was the second or third night, but, um, I mean, this trip was draining. Um, we were, well, the kids were, um, getting less and less sleep every night. Jeb never really got much sleep the whole trip. Um, but, um, you know, we always were asking for God to give us the strength that we needed and to remind us of that throughout the entire trip. Um, one of the nights, uh, we actually were doing worship um, for about an hour, hour and a half, and right in the middle of the worship, um, the lights went out. And I think everybody there, including myself, was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Somebody turned the lights out. You know, that's yeah, that's a little to the ambience of the you know worship and stuff. Um, and they got down to the end, and JT, the leader of One Way, was like, uh, sorry for the power going out. You know, it wasn't really planned. We're like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. The power went out. Um, and so we were thinking it was just that building. Well, when we first got in there, um, I guess I was being kind of selfish. I wanted to see the stars, but there were too many lights. And so I was like, it'd be really nice if they could turn off all the lights here so we could see the stars. Well, it just so happened when the electricity went out, uh, that was all the lights. And so you literally walk out, and it's pitch black, and you look up, and there's more stars in the sky than you can count. Um, the more interesting thing about it is they had a cross that was up on a hill back at the back part of the complex, and it had a light on it. Well, um, it wasn't just our complex that went out of electricity or that lost electricity. It was a grid that lost electricity. However, there was still the light on the cross. The light for the cross was still on and shining on it. And uh, I think in all our prayers asking for reminding of why we're there and, you know, that God presence is always there. He showed us his great creation and the light on the cross saying, I am still here. And just trust in me and you'll get through this week. And I think it was very beneficial. So. Um, yeah, you know, there were a couple of things that, that we came away with from the scripture. One was just the that struck me about our, our, our entire group was how just how natural it is to serve when God is working through you, you know, when God touches you. You know, we saw this time and time again. This wasn't an easy trip. Uh, so we, I'm, I'm sure you've already heard stories or seen it on Facebook. You know, we had a couple of couple of hospital trips. Um, kids were fine, but we had we had a couple of things that, that could have been much worse, but were yeah, actually ended up being being fine. We had a few illnesses, things like that. And time and time again, when when people could have said, you know, man, this is tough. They just kept on going, you know. Laura had to go to the ER one night with something sort of like an asthma attack um, that she'd never had before. Could have, could have ruined the whole trip for her. And she got up the next day, and despite the very little sleep we got that night, uh, just started targeting one-on-one two or three girls at, at Red Hill and just stuck with them all week long. And every time you looked at her, she was just beaming. It was amazing. Um, poor J.D., uh, Sherry's daughter over here, Joel's sister, she fell off her bunk bed one night. We had to take her to the hospital. And, and, and you know, the next morning, you know, been totally natural with lack of sleep and the trauma that, you know, they were given the opportunity to just stay back, rest, recover. We wouldn't even think about it. They just kept plowing ahead. They knew those kids were waiting on them, and they went out and they served. And did it with everything they had. Um, we had an advanced team that went out to Red Hill every day. Uh, a couple hours before the rest of us got there, there was a food program. And they would talk to the kids there and play with them until we got there. And we pull up one day, and Judah Paget is buying every kid their ice cream from the ice cream truck. And Judah didn't have much money, but he was just doing it. Um, out at Church Rock, there was a there was a basketball goal um, with no net, and uh, you know one of the few. Things out there, you know, entertainment wise to do. 
and they didn't have a basketball goal. So Ashley went and bought him a basketball. And she had a couple of the girls wrote verses all over it and had all the kids sign it and gave it to them. Um, Sarah Troxel connected with a girl named, named Autumn. Uh, knows her, her shoes weren't very good, uh, that she was coming in every day. So she went and bought her some flip-flops and brought them the last day. Um, Autumn actually didn't come to VBS that day. Sarah remembered where she lived and tracked her down and found her. And turned out that girl actually had a, had a gift waiting for her, too. Um, so it was just, you know, it, God moved. You know, he, wor- he worked through us. It wasn't easy. But, uh, you know, these kids, they stepped up, and they served with all their hearts. And uh, just... Uh, couldn't be more proud of them. And, but the flip side of that is that we also know it wasn't us. We know that when you serve, when you're serving God, you don't do it out of your own strength. If you try, you'll fail. And so one of the things we learned about this trip was the absolute dependency we had on God and prayer and making that a priority. And we did, despite the lack of sleep, still getting up, spending time with God and moving forward and uh, and God uses as a result. As a result. So, uh, anyway, it was an incredible trip. I'm sure you'll hear lots of stories. I would encourage you to corner these guys one-on-one. I don't think they'll try to run from you, most of them. Um, but uh, ask them about There's lots of stuff to share uh, on a trip like this. But uh, thank you for sending us. Many of you have had these youth in your homes, working, doing adoptive youth. So you've come to our parents' nights out, done different things. Uh, thank you for supporting us and for sending us. It makes a difference in the lives in Gallup, and it, it's made a difference in us. So thank you. Thank you. Before, before they go down, let me just say, uh, just join me in prayer. Just let's pray and thank God for them being back and here safely. And just do this real quickly. Dear Lord, we just thank you and praise you so much for these youth and the workers that went with them. And uh, Lord, we just thank you so much for bringing them back safely. And uh, Lord, we delight in what you've done in their lives. And we pray that you will continue to bear fruit uh, from the seeds of the gospel that were planted there. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.